It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 49 of Sports Day Plus. At 6.30, it is the first of a two-part conversation with stand-up comedian Joe DeRosa, ahead of his headlining shows at the Comedy Mothership this weekend. At 6.15, looks like the Cowboys are keeping Mike McCarthy around for at least one more year. And a mere seconds, Longhorn Hoops and Rodney Terry made the wrong sort of headlines last night following a loss to Central Florida at the Moody Center. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can give me a follow on Twitter, at Courtesy Wave, and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027ESPN. Well, Texas Longhorn men's basketball has taken an unfortunate turn since the start of conference play four years ago. Since then, which began with a home game against Texas Tech, one that saw the Longhorns lose by double digits, there's been a lot more losing where that came from. Texas currently sits at 1-3 and three in conference play and very well could be 0-4 if it weren't for a comeback at Cincinnati a couple of games ago, about a week ago. The most recent loss was last night to Central Florida by a final of 77-71. to 71. This despite the fact that Texas led by 16 points at one point in the first half led by 12 at halftime, built the lead back to 14 in the opening minutes of the second half, and then they completely collapsed after that. Overall in the second half, UCF outscored Texas 45-27, to had an enormous advantage on the boards, and saw a Texas team become pretty listless on the offensive end down the stretch. 12 of Texas' final 13 shots were from three-point land, and not all of those were with a six-or-so-point deficit that UCF ends up winning by. Shots were being settled for. Very little effort being made to move around on offense to get a better shot in crunch time. And ultimately, UCF, who is looked at as one of the worst teams in this conference, even despite the fact that they did beat Kansas not too long ago, they do upset Texas at home, again, 77-71. to But that is only a small part of the story last night, unfortunately, and certainly not the reason why Texas Hoops found itself making national headlines last night and this morning. That would be courtesy of head coach Rodney Terry, who after the game, as coaches and players were exchanging good game handshakes, quality that is very unique to the sport of basketball in terms of everybody shaking everybody else's hands at the end of the game. I know football does a version of this. Hockey at the end of a playoff series does something along these lines. Actually, hockey's version is the coolest. Basketball does have the handshake line at the ends of games, and as the handshake line was commencing with zeros hitting the clock, Several UCF players were flashing the horns down hand sign in the direction of the Longhorn student section. Longhorn students are rightfully mouthy and rambunctious during games, trying to get in the heads of and psych out their opponents. Well, at the end of a hard-fought battle like that, the UCF guys were telling Texas students exactly what they thought of them by flashing some horns down hand signs. 
Well, this struck a nerve with Rodney Terry, a guy who is clearly struggling to find answers right now on how to consistently win basketball games in a very difficult conference to do so. So he decided to take it on himself as he was saying good game to some guys, singling out other dudes who were doing the hands-down sign and telling them to cut that out. It's BS. Stop doing that. It's classless. Be better winners than that. That video alone garnered national attention and jokes, unfortunately, from beyond the 40 acres from non-Texas fans who point at Rodney Terry and say to themselves and everybody else who will listen, look at how sensitive Texas fans are again about the whole horns down bit. It is sensitive. And most Texas fans aren't like that. It's why it's a problem when Somebody, and I feel like it's almost always a coach that falls into this trap when they fall into the complaining about the horns down bit. Mac Brown did it. Tom Herman did it. Roddy Terry does it last night. And it makes it seem like that's how we all feel about it. Look, I understand the horns down bit doesn't feel good, but the more you react to something like that, the worse it's potentially going to be for you. You think the number of horns down, hand signs that this basketball team is going to be dealing with by the opposition or by opposing fan bases who are on the road the rest of the year is going to go down now? No, it's only going to go up. Unfortunately, I think of it like the sign at a workplace where there are accidents, accidents that can potentially hurt people. It's been this many days since there's been an accident in this workplace. You want to see that number go as high as possible. We need some sort of counter. Maybe we're putting it on the side of the UT Tower or the side of the Moody Center somewhere, DKR. Maybe there just needs to be a a website dedicated to this. It's been this many days since a single Longhorn fan, player, or coach has freaked out about the horns downhand sign. We need that number to go as high as possible because as soon as it resets to zero, This thing remains what it currently is for, I don't know, five to ten years at least. It would take a decade of Texas fans not reacting to that for it to even start going down. You know Big 12 opponents are going to be doing this the rest of the academic athletic year in the Big 12. And it's not like SEC fans are full of class. I don't even think this is necessarily a matter of class or not. In certain situations it might be. But you could also argue those are situations where the opponent will be penalized if they are being classless with the horns down. If you're showing it in a guy's face, gesturing in a guy's face, it has been established that that is not okay. That gets penalized in football, flagged for unsportsmanlike conduct, just like it would if you were to get into a guy's face and trash talk him in a belligerent way. Rodney, per- uh, Rodney Terry has set that clock back now, unfortunately. And I don't think that his intentions were negative or bad. I think it came from a good place. Again, he is feeling the pressure. He is ticked. He is confounded by what the answer could possibly be to help this basketball team win games. And that frustration came out directed at those UCF players last night. Afterward, Rodney Terry was asked about it in his post-game presser, and I don't disagree with his ideology behind not doing something like that. To paraphrase, it's win like a champion and lose like a champion. They won that game. Kudos to them. They played a better basketball game in the second half, but 
They won like pompous jerks. That's on them though, Rodney. That's not your team. Those aren't your guys. Maybe say something behind closed doors to the UCF coach if you feel that strongly about it. And he can maybe try to redirect. But that is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is winning basketball games at the University of Texas. A lot of UT fans right now are saying, well, Rodney Terry was a bad hire to begin with at the end of last season. I disagree with that. I think Rodney Terry was exceptional last year as a head coach. Yes, exceptional. That was a very unique circumstance this program dealt with. Chris Beard getting suspended and ultimately fired halfway through the year. Rodney Terry helped to right the ship, proved to be a quality leader of men, a good X's and O's coach on game day, and got this program to a point that it hadn't been in the tourney in more than a decade. So I think he earned the opportunity to be the head coach. Now, you can question how long he gets to be the head coach, especially if this season not just continues going sideways, but enters a full-on tailspin, a nosedive, which is possible, by the way. Their next six games are against ranked opponents, and in large majority of the rest of the schedule, the final 14 games, also involve ranked opponents. So this could go very poorly. I don't think Rodney Terry loses his job after year one, but if not, the seat could be scorching hot heading into year two. So take note, Texas fans. Remember it, bury it, use it as motivation. Do not react outwardly to the horns down bit because we've got to reset that clock to zero. All right, coming up. Get into another tortured team. That would be the Dallas Cowboys. Looks like Mike McCarthy is going to be your coach next year, y'all. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back on a Thursday edition of Sports Day Plus. In a minute, we're going to get into the Dallas Cowboys making a decision on Mike McCarthy's future with the franchise. First, though, I needed to let you know about a friend of mine. That would be Brian Hummel. His website, HummelRealtor.com. Are you searching for your dream home in Austin? Or maybe you're curious about how much your home is worth? Look no further than Brian Hummel, your trusted Austin realtor with Realty One Group Prosper. Brian is more than just a realtor. He's a full-service expert overseeing your entire transaction from start to finish. He'll lead you through each step of the buying or selling process with questions answered and details explained in plain English. With over two decades in Austin, Brian has witnessed the dynamic growth and evolution of the Central Texas market, making him your invaluable resource for buying, selling, and investing. Plus, as a certified real estate negotiator, Brian brings a strategic and skillful approach to bargaining. He secures the best deals, whether it's getting the highest price for a seller or the most favorable terms for a buyer. It's been interesting to live here in Central Texas over the last year. Things have gone down a tick in the housing market, which is an oddity in Central Texas. You know, it's only a matter of time before things trend back upwards. We're already seeing those signs on top of this being the most popular time to get a home on the market. It's actually a good time for both buyers and sellers right now in Central Texas. That's why if you are either, you need to contact my friend Brian today at 512-619-1347. That's 619-1347. Or log on to his website, HummelRealtor.com. That's H-U-M-M-E-L, Realtor.com. Brian Hummel with Realty One, the one you need. Well, Cowboys fans, I'm sorry. I need to offer up an apology because not even halfway through 
your home playoff loss to the Green Bay Packers on Sunday, I tweeted something out. That tweet, paraphrasing, because I'm not on my own Twitter account right now, at Courtesy Wave, by the way, for those of you who would like to follow, was something to the effect of when it was 27 to nothing, I think it was directly after that pick six that Dak threw. Silver lining, Cowboys fans. You're going to have a new head coach next season. Oops. Psych. Not. Is what I should have followed it with and what I think I retweeted myself in the last 12 hours or so because it looks like Mike McCarthy is remaining the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas actually puts out a press release saying as much as plenty have pointed out. I'm not the first. Only the Cowboys are putting out press releases to talk about the fact that they're keeping a lame duck coach, but that's exactly what's happening here. Mike McCarthy had his exit interviews with his players, and then Jerry and Steven had their exit interview with Mike McCarthy, and it was determined that McCarthy is good enough to be this team's head football coach next season. In McCarthy's defense, he has helped this franchise win 12 games three straight years. The first time this has happened since that Super Bowl era of the early to mid-1990s. Just one problem, though. In his time in Dallas, his team has made the playoffs three times. They are one and three in those three seasons. A close win over Seattle. Other than that, all losses. The most recent being the most humiliating, too. With Green Bay just completely pounding the Cowboys. Look, Dallas scored 16 points in the fourth quarter. That game wasn't as close as the blowout score made it look. That's how bad of a loss it was. And oh, by the way, you're probably about to lose Dan Quinn as your defensive coordinator this year, too. I understand that the defense was a bigger problem for this team on Sunday than the offense was. The offense started to get its act together. The defense never did. So anytime the Cowboys offense would score a touchdown to cut into that lead, that defense was like a sieve, just allowing Aaron Jones and Jordan Love and those receivers to quickly work their way down the field for another score, usually a touchdown. But Dan Quinn is a big reason why this franchise was able to accomplish what it has over the last few years now. He's already interviewed for two coaching gigs. Let's say Carolina, maybe Washington. He's got another couple of interviews scheduled. Seattle is on that list for him. Don't be surprised if he is not your DC next year. And if so, who are you replacing him with? Mike McCarthy is going to remain as the team's offensive play caller. I don't think there should be an issue with that. The offense was good this year. Dak Prescott took a huge step forward. As a regular season quarterback, a little bit left to be desired in the run game, but that might be a matter of finding different personnel. I don't know if Tony Pollard can be that guy. It seemed like he was on track to do so, but that injury that ended his 22 season clearly lingered into this year. He started to look better in the second half, so maybe you have faith that he gets to full strength next season. But even though Dak was a great regular season quarterback this year, once again, he comes up empty in the playoffs. And that has been far too common a theme in his career. He's entering his final year 
under contract with the Cowboys, there's a good chance after next season the Cowboys are looking for both a new head coach and a new starting quarterback too. I would argue that should be the case unless this team figures out a way to either get the one seed and win their divisional matchup to make it to the championship game or if they don't get that one seed, they win two playoff games to make it to the NFC championship game. Anything short of that, and it's time to hit the reset button at the two most important positions for a football team, head coach and quarterback. The Cowboys had 12 wins this year in 17 regular season games. How many of those were against bad competition? Let's remember, the NFL finally achieved peak parity. I think for the first time since the free agency era really began some 30 or so years ago. How many teams were right around 9-8 and eight or 8-9, eight and nine, if not a game or two above or below that? Even though most of those teams don't really stand a chance to make a run to the Super Bowl or did not in that moment, you as a fan had to hold out hope that you could actually make it to the playoffs because if you can get there, anything can happen. It is sports after all. But the Cowboys benefited from playing a lot of the worst teams that either qualified in that pure parity sort of way or were even worse than a 500 club. When they face good teams, with few exceptions, I know the Lions count as a good team, and they are a good team. Should have lost that game, refs. They beat Philadelphia. You felt great about that win in the moment, but that turned out to be Fool's gold. It felt a little bit like fool's gold in the moment, and Philadelphia only continued to collapse from there. So ultimately, you didn't really have that many great wins to hang your hat on. The Lions win is the best win, but again, that win was tainted by really bad officiating. Perhaps the most transparent moment from what the Cowboys were capable of in the postseason is the two games before that Lions game. Getting blown out at Buffalo and then losing to a Dolphins team in Miami that didn't even play that great of a game. You had a chance to win that game at the end, but you didn't. So now the Cowboys have to sit and wait another offseason, knowing that Mike McCarthy is still the head coach, waiting to see what happens with the defensive coordinator, and figuring out what they can do to get a little bit better on both sides of the ball. And whether those additions can add to a sort of gumption that is necessary to win in January in the NFL. Because the formula as it currently exists isn't getting the job done. Now maybe it's as easy for the defense as getting Trayvon Diggs and maybe Leighton Vander Esch back because I feel like last Sunday was the first time all year that this franchise truly missed those two guys. But even with Van Der Esch in there, this was a team that had a hard time stopping the, uh, uh, the opposing rushing attack. Aaron Jones feasted on them on Sunday. He's been really good since coming back from that injury a month or so ago. But if you're that good of a defense, you need to be able to slow up a team's strength. They could not do that, and they made Jordan Love look like freaking Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre. Not to say he doesn't have a bright future in the NFL. 
showed some really nice things this year. But is he that good? Or did the Cowboys' defense just completely give up at some point in that game? And we're never really able to get that mojo back. Wasted a really good year for this Cowboys offensive line, too, by the way. I mean, heck, even Tyron Smith was able to stay healthy and return to a sort of Pro Bowl level. But it ended up not mattering. You made it a game further than a bunch of mediocre to bad football teams that missed out on the postseason altogether. And that final game was a home game, too. And it ended up not mattering at all. That 16-game home win streak didn't matter. Hadn't lost at home in two seasons. Did not matter. I know Cowboys fans will say, we went up against a postseason kryptonite for us, especially in the recent past. Yeah, Green Bay kind of hasn't been that. I don't know how many playoff teams the Cowboys would have beaten that qualified for the postseason this year in either the AFC or NFC with how they played on Sunday. They looked like a team that was tense and tight and not ready to go on either side of the ball. It was somewhat reminiscent of how Texas looked at the start of their semifinal matchup against Washington in the Superdome on New Year's night. I thought the silver lining for you guys, as somebody who's not a Cowboys fan, is that you get a new head football coach. There are a lot of qualified candidates out there, guys who have serious postseason resumes. Unfortunately, you're going to have to watch other teams hire those guys, Cowboys fans, because you're stuck with McCarthy for one more year. All right, coming up, it is the first of a two-segment conversation with stand-up comedian Joe DeRosa, ahead of his headlining shows at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. That's up next here on Sports Day Plus. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Joe DeRosa is a longtime stand-up comedian, writer, and sandwich artiste. That's right, sandwich artiste. We will get into that here in a little bit. He's actually going to be here in Austin this weekend, headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership. Two shows Friday, two shows Saturday. I don't remember if there's a show on Sunday or not. Here's the thing. You're not going to be able to see that if you don't already have tickets. That's because those shows are sold out. I do still recommend you check out a show at the Comedy Mothership. You can snag tickets at ComedyMothership.com. Joe, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm good, my friend. How are you? Doing great. Excited to have you back in town this weekend. I would ask if you have performed at the Comedy Mothership before, but I know you have because I actually saw you do, I want to say, five or ten minutes before Andrew Santino was headlining a weekend show several months back. What were your initial impressions of uh, Joe's spot, considering how much love it's received over the last year? Uh, good. Uh, you know, I, I'd been there. Uh, I'd been there a few times, uh, maybe once or twice prior to that, uh, just hanging out. And uh, I think I'd maybe done a spot in the uh, in the, uh, in the second room, um, but. Uh, it's a good, uh, it's a good place. It's, it's a very, uh, it's very wired into the, uh, comedian, uh, experience. Um, you know, I can't, I can't speak to it as an audience goer. Uh, they, they seem to love it and the audience seems to have an amazing time. But as far as a a performer is concerned, it's really, uh, wired into, uh, the, the, how the place operates and functions, 
uh, it's very organically functioning in the mode that you want a place to function as a comic, uh, as far as just the energy and the experience and, and the people and all that stuff. So I, I, I like it. It's a good spot. I've done Kill Tony there uh, once or twice. And this is my first time, though, really, really performing there. You know, uh, you know, I, like I said, I did a couple 10-minute spots here or there, but this is the first time I'm going to really get to, like, kind of sink into it, um, which, is, which is exciting. So, you know, I always like having more time than less. Uh, because it, it kind of lets you, you know, kind of lay into your, your, your surroundings and, and get comfortable, you know, and, and figure out what the real rhythm and energy of the room is and all that stuff versus a short set. You don't really have the time to do that. You kind of got to get out and just, you know, just, just kind of hit stuff as quickly, uh, as you can. Uh, while still allowing for for it to be organic and and you know you want to still connect and everything, but a long set is really where you get to kind of you know uh, lay back for a second and uh, and take it all in and and uh, and that that uh, allows for different energies and all that stuff. So so I'm looking forward to it. So you're a man of many talents. I'm uh, jealous in, of your life as a stand-up comedian. You're also a writer, but I'm maybe most jealous of the fact that you are a uh, sandwich artiste as uh, represented by the fact that you own a great sandwich place in New York, Joey Rose's. Not to go too Joey from Friends on you, Joe, but my favorite food is sandwiches, in large part because it's just the perfect vehicle to deliver ingredients to your mouth and then into your stomach, too. What do you love about sandwiches? Did Joey on Friends say that? Yeah, his favorite food was sandwiches. I I always resented that oh. because uh, that, that I was saying that since I was preteen, and then unfortunately he popularized it. So <laughs> no, no. Uh, my, I love sandwiches too. Uh, obviously. Um, wait, what was the question? Sorry. Uh, what do you love about sandwiches? Uh, I I think they're a perfect food because sandwiches can can be the the centerpiece of any meal it's the only food i can think i mean look obviously you can eat whatever you want whenever you want you could eat salad for breakfast if you like and and uh and waffles for dinner but you know traditionally sandwiches in my opinion um are the only food that that infiltrate every single meal there's breakfast sandwiches there's obviously lunch sandwiches and then dinner sandwiches are a thing too like it's it's not uncommon to go to a pub or a sandwich shop or, or wherever and get, you know, a sandwich for dinner. Uh, so um, I, I just think they're a perfect food for, for a lot of the reasons you already stated. But, you know, it's, you know, uh, you, you, you take a form of bread or, or not even, uh, it doesn't even have to be bread anymore. It can be a wrap or. I guess that's a little bit different or, or even, you know, people that don't eat carbs do it with lettuce. Um, but you can just take two pieces of something traditionally and most commonly bread and fill it with um, whatever ingredients you want. You know, there's, there's, there's salad sandwiches. So it's like, I think it's, you know, it's kind of gone, you know, there's pasta sandwiches now. Like it's like, it's gone, it's gone, 
it's gone to all corners of the spectrum. Uh, and I, I just, I always loved sandwiches as a kid. I just, I don't know. Like it started for me with hoagies in the Philly uh, area in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, and I still have a great love for, for hoagies, which is why we started the shop. We tried to, we tried to create uh, a sandwich that, that had a little bit of the Philadelphia energy and vibe in it uh, that also kind of met the New York style a little bit. Um, we, wanted, we wanted something that sat sort of in between the two and was its own thing. And, uh, and we felt that there was a sort of a, a weird dearth of it uh, in New York. Was, was confusing to us why you couldn't find uh, uh, these types of sandwiches outside of going into like bodegas and ordering, you know, the, which are good. I'm not knocking those, but you know, like, like a shop that was really devoted to just that, like it was very confusing to us why it was so hard to come by in New York. Uh, and then, you know, the sandwich sh shops that are there um, seem to focus a little more on the non, you know, like Katz's and stuff. Those are Jewish delis and those are, you know, like Second Avenue Deli and Sarge's are great, but they focus on a very different style of sandwich, obviously. So we wanted to focus on this uh, more of the sort of traditionally, I guess, Italian-American style. And, um, and that's, that's where it all came from. And that's, that's, you know, what I love about it. Not to hammer the, the Jewish deli too hard, but I feel like there's an uneven distribution of ingredients. And one of the things that makes a sandwich great is the proper ratio of, of various things. And there are plenty of elements that go into a really good sandwich. Obviously, dis uh, distribution of ingredients is important, quality of ingredients. But I feel like if you're starting with a bad piece of bread or bad two pieces of bread, the sandwich fails almost immediately. Yeah, no, my partner Paul said very early on, we sampled a lot of different types of bread. And I, I was like, look, you know, this is kind of what we're going for here. And he said very quickly, the bread is the star of the show. If we don't, if we don't nail the bread, it's not going to work. And he was right. Um, and I felt strongly about that too. But I would, I would go as far as to say he felt even more strongly. We both, we both agreed that the bread was important. But he really was, was a stickler on when, when we were working the recipe, which took a few months to figure out. And this guy, Fausto, that works at Paul's Club, The Stand, um, was the one that mastered it for us. We just kept saying this, but less of this. And what you did more, but in but what you did there, but more in this direction. And like wildly, it's funny, like working in entertainment and stuff. It was it was a lot like when you when you when I've written for TV, it was like giving like script notes. Mm. Uh, and he would take the note, go back and adjust the piece. And then, and then it would come back and it would be a little bit closer. And then eventually you, you just nail it, you know? Uh, so the bread's really important to us, you know, having the bread, the fresh baked uh, bread from that morning being used for the sandwiches that day. Um, you know, that's, that's really, 
the cornerstone of why it works. And then the, the distribution of ingredients, like you said, is very important to us. You know, uh, Dave, who's our, who runs our kitchen, is, you know, he's always like, look, man, you can eat our sandwiches with one hand. That's kind of the idea. It's not some big, I like a big sandwich, you know, like, but like big sandwiches tend to get sloppy. They tend to be too much. You know, you, you, you don't, you don't finish it. If you do finish it, you don't feel good after. <laughs> if you don't finish it, you don't always eat the other half. Or you, or, or you're at the place and then you're going around all day and you're like, God, man, I got to carry this around and like, it's going to get like warm or it's going to get cold. And it's just not going to be the same uh, later. And, uh, you know, also, too, a, a really big sandwich costs a lot of money. Like, you have to charge a lot, at least in, in New York. You know, we try to keep – we try our best to keep our prices pretty pretty competitive for New York. If we weren't even – if we weren't in New York, our prices would be even better. Uh, but, unfortunately, New York is – is New York. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But what we didn't want to do was start having $25 sandwiches, you know, so, um, which a lot of places do. So, um, you know, all, all these elements are really important. Like, you know, there, there's a science to how our sandwiches are made and it's been there from the beginning. And it's, again, it's the, kind of the cornerstone of how it all works. He is stand-up comedian Joe DeRosa, headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. I tell you to go to ComedyMothership.com to snag tickets, but the Friday and Saturday shows are all sold out. Coming up, one more segment with Joe on the other side. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie. Back for one more segment with stand-up comedian, writer, and sandwich artiste Joe DeRosa. He is headlining at Joe Rogan's Comedy Mothership this weekend. Shows Friday and Saturday. They're all sold out. I do still recommend you check out a show at the Mothership. You can snag tickets for shows that aren't sold out at ComedyMothership.com. All right, so one of the two podcasts that you do uh, is called Taste Buds with your buddy Sal, who has been on this show before. You also do We'll See You in Hell uh, with yourself and Patrick yeah. Walsh, as far as taste buds are concerned, although it's rooted in food, it's basically you guys debating uh, what is better between one thing or another. For instance, oceans or lakes, if, if you're going non-food. But I've got a good one for you, I think, for the Austin food scene. I'm assuming you as a lover of food has uh, explored Austin a little bit food-wise. So uh, what is your pick between Texas barbecue or breakfast tacos? So Texas brisket or breakfast tacos i love texas barbecue uh i'm not a big brisket fan anywhere Mm. for me the pork barbecue meats and the uh, beef ribs when it comes to beef they're the bangers for me i've I've never been a big uh, brisket fan i know it's kind of sacrilege to say here but i don't know i just when, when i'm putting brisket next to pork ribs or beef ribs I mean, forget it. Like pork and beef ribs all day long, every day. And I know it's different cuts, obviously, but that's why I like one better than the other. That's why I like people say pulled pork. I'm like, against pork ribs? I'm just going to I'm gonna take the ribs, man. You know, like I love rib meat. It really excites me. Uh, 
It's flavorful. It's a banger. I really love the way Texas barbecue does turkey too, though. Mm. Texas has a way of making turkey pop in a way that, you know, I've never experienced anywhere else. And I'm not a turkey hater. I like turkey a lot. But Texas takes it to a special place where I'm like, man, I'll think about that at length. Uh, but, <laughs> but the breakfast tacos are amazing. I love tacos. I'm not a big breakfast taco guy except for when I'm in Texas. I usually go eggs, beans, and, and jalapenos. Okay. Maybe a little bit of cheese, but usually not. And then salsa, too, or, or pico or whatever. But again, for whatever reason, they're just done perfectly here versus in other parts of the country. You know, It's the same reason why I think pizza can be good in a lot of places, but it's really perfected in specific areas. And I feel like Texas really nails that with with both barbecue and the breakfast tacos you know when i worked for the senate when i lived here in 2000 i worked for the senate i we i go down to the commissary commissary almost every morning and start the day with breakfast tacos i mean i was 21 so i was able to do that i could die if i did that now uh, <laughs> or at least go to sleep i wouldn't be able to work all day but I love both, man. I love both. I'm not being diplomatic. What did you do for the Senate back in 2000? Uh, I was a radio reporter. Oh, okay. For the Texas Senate. So I, I had to cover the legislative session. I think it was the 76 or the 77. I can't remember. But yeah, that was my first paid work in entertainment, was writing and recording the radio report every day of what happened in the Senate that day. And you're saying the Texas Senate? Yeah, for the media department. Was Senate. that when Rick Perry was the governor? Rick Perry was the governor. Uh, Bush had just left to become president. Yeah. Uh, uh, Perry took over. So Perry was active when I started. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I made friendly with a lot of senators and some of the people I worked with in the media department are, are still my, some of my dearest friends to this day. I see them every time I come down to Texas or mm. to Austin. Uh, some some real lifelong memories uh, during that period. That was a wild time. The Texas Ledge obviously has a pretty wild reputation itself. What was the craziest thing that you saw or had to cover during your time here? Nothing crazy uh, as far as like what transpired in the Senate. Um, you know, there were some heated issues and stuff, but I, I didn't witness anything crazy, but I will say it was a, it was a, a monumental year in my life as far as growth and cultural experience is concerned, because I was a kid from, uh, the East coast who had never lived anywhere or, or really ever visited anywhere outside of the East Coast. I, I, I visited Austin once before moving here, uh, but I was very unfamiliar with the world and other cultures and how other cultures function. And my introduction into that was, was moving to Austin, taking a job where, where I had to wear a suit every day and was suddenly thrown headfirst into the world of politics which I didn't really know anything about. I had to learn. It was, it was fun, but 
at times it was it was extraordinarily high pressure because I had to learn so much as I was going uh, and learn so much on the fly. And then I was making these friends in the media department uh, who were unlike anybody I'd ever known because, again, I only knew East Coast people. So I was meeting and making new friends that, that were culturally from these from a very different world who were expressing things to me uh, that I had never had people express to me that were challenging me and my own opinions in ways I'd never been challenged. Uh, and all of it with this backdrop of the legislative session behind us with all kinds of heated issues like racial profiling and other things that were happening at the time. And then I moved, I, 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 the last month I was here, 9-11 happened. So, oh, wow. so that was, it was wild. It was wild. There was a lot of, there was a lot of talk in the Senate about Bush W and how he had left and uh, him being president now. And there were a lot of, uh, you know, different opinions about that. Some, some positive, some negative, depending on which side of the coin the person was on. Mm. Um, there was a lot of talk about Rick Perry. Rick Perry was sort of a controversial guy. The Lieutenant governor, blanking on his name. He was, a sort of controversial figure in his own right. Um, you know, it was, you know, and then there was the public discourse throughout the entire country at that time. Of, did Bush deserve the election? Did he steal it? There was just so much going on sociopolitically at that time. And to start my year being thrust with this culture shock of new, new state, new city, new life, new friends, new environment, new job, put on a suit every day, do all the stuff you've never done and have that year basically culminate the camp, not the calendar year, but just the, you know, the, the duration of the months culminate with nine 11 happening, uh, in, in living in Texas, working at the time, I, I, I was not at the Senate at that point. I had just left and I was working for the Austin Music Network, but our editing facility mm. was at the old airport that Bush used to fly into. I went to, I had to go to work on 9-11 and there was massive amounts of security around the entire airport. You know, making, sh really vetting like who was coming in and who was going out because that was the airport the president used to land in Texas. Um, you know, having some of my first Arab American friends, I'm, I'm Arab, but I never really knew any Arabs because I was adopted, you know, here in Texas, seeing how the 9-11 fallout was affecting them. It was wild. It was a pretty wild time. And then I moved home and started doing stand-up comedy. <laughs> so, so that was that year of my life. It was a hell of a year. So you didn't do stand-up until after you moved away from Austin. You weren't popping in to open mics at uh, Cap City or anything like that. No, no, no. Apparently the Texas lieutenant governor at that time was the very forgettable Bill Ratliff, whatever it's worth. 
Um, well, I don't think he was forgettable. I found him a, to be an incredibly interesting man. Okay. Uh, I feel actually felt bad that I couldn't remember his name. I found him to be incredibly interesting. I, I, I couldn't tell you right now with a gun to my head what his politics were, hmm. but I admired that he had his beliefs and he voiced them and he didn't apologize for it. I, I watched him one day get challenged by reporters if he was going to offer an apology for something he said. And he goes, no, I said it. If I said it. I'm not going to apologize for it. And, and that was end of discussion because there actually was a time where you could say to somebody, I'm sorry, I don't feel that I need to apologize for that. And it was like, okay, well then let's move on. We'll agree to disagree. Not like now where you're like, Oh, can you believe that he didn't apologize? You know? And that's not me saying nobody should ever apologize for me. That's just me saying that the conversation around the apology is just nauseating after a while. So, um, you know, that's the part that it's just exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. So anyway, um, I thank you for having me, man. I apologize. I got to run. But uh, I'm glad we got some time to talk here. No sweat. Everybody can check Joe out. You can't check him out at the Mothership. Those shows are sold out. They always do sell out. But check out JoeDeRosa.com for the podcast and everything else. Uh, Joe, would love to catch up again at some point. I know you're a writer. We'd love to uh, talk about your books for the Books on Pod podcast a little bit more. But thank you so much for the time, man. Yeah, anytime, buddy. Thank you for having me. All right. Another show is in the books. Thank you so much for tuning in. Back tomorrow at 6. That includes a two-part conversation with Sammy P. Helping you DJs get ready for the football gambling weekend. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night. And hook them. It's Sports Day Plus with Trey Ellie.